Petros Krusophis. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I hope I didn't butcher the name too much there. <laughs> you're right, yeah. Cool. Okay, so you're joining me from California. Um, whereabouts in California? Uh, so the Central Valley uh, of California. Uh, it's it's like the part of California that not a whole lot of people know. So if, if you're not familiar with it, it goes from Sacramento all the way down to Bakersfield. And I'm bam smack in the middle in Fresno. So, okay, cool. Yeah. Have you always been there, or have you moved around the U.S.? No, I I moved. I came to the U.S. five years ago, and uh, I've always been around this part. So this is where, like, you know, my I I moved in with my wife, and this is where she's from. So, um, just kind of lived around here for the last five years. Cool, nice and sunny. I'm sure. Actually, six years now. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Too sunny. Ah, uh, I, oh, yeah. I see, I <laughs> see. Um, I'm having you on the show because you're a human wildlife conflict specialist. That's a mouthful. You're also yep. the founder of Predator Detection, which is right up my alley. I'm originally from northern Ontario, so I was born and bred in the woods, uh, you know, with uh, moose and deer and wolves and lynx mm -hmm. and all those oh, fun, so fun animals. So, so jealous, yeah. <laughs> Why are you jealous? Uh, we don't have, well, we have some wolves in California. Uh, but not not only one of them in my backyard officially so far, uh, and no lynx. Obviously, we've got bobcats, uh, no moose. So you know, right? But I, you got I deer? like the North America animals, and I like the North North America animals a lot. So. Right. Well, it's funny because my partner and I are moving to Prince Edward Island, so I'm not sure how familiar you are with Canada, mm -hmm. but there's an island in the in the Atlantic on the East Coast, and there are no predators other than coyotes. There's essentially nothing. There's no wolves. There's no um, deer, no moose, no bears, no porcupine. Wow. It's it's just coyote country, and that's it. And I guess they eat all the rabbits. And, and Yeah, that makes sense, know. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's going to be weird. It's going to be definitely weird to not see, like, bear prints. That's going to be a little bizarre. Um, so I need to know, like, you know, because I, I have always thought that was a cool job to do predator detection and mm -hmm. all that stuff. Um, how did you come about before we get started? Because I want to know, like, were you just somebody like a nerd who grew up in the forest? You were comfortable there. Um, how did you come about? So it's predator detection and deterrence. And we'll talk about the deterrence part as well. Yes. Um, but I grew up in the island of Cyprus. So um, it's an island in the Mediterranean. We don't have a whole lot of predators and meat. We have some woods, but not anywhere near the extent of like what people think about like in Zin forests. Um, originally, I wanted to be a marine biologist, uh, and then my dad is like, okay, you want to be a marine biologist? Because uh, I wanted to work with whales. So he's like, let's go talk to a marine biologist, and uh, you know, you can see what it's like. And uh, that completely put me off being a marine biologist. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Why? I mean, I'm just curious. So I'm just curious. And no, no offense or anything to anyone who is a marine biologist, clearly, but I thought it was all about to do with whales and stuff. I was really young, and I thought... Right. Everyone is like swimming with sharks and whales and stuff. And the reality of the, the profession and the reality of the science is much different than what I had in mind. Um, so I was kind of like, I was a little down. So I was like, I don't want to work with shrimp. I don't want to work with like mussels and oysters. <laughs> right. And uh, so my dad suggested, hey, you know what? You like animals. So go be a zoologist. That encompasses all animals. So you can until you find something that you want to be, you can specialize in all animals. And so, you, you, you know, you, while you were there in school, you, you poke around and you find out what you want to find out. And 
um, during that time, I just kind of like, I worked hard on trying to pinpoint what I wanted. And for me, it was, it was killer whales were like my big draw, right? Into the, the, the um, dolphins and the whales. And so I realized, actually, I like predators a lot. It's not just killer whales. Like, I like all predators a lot. And then, you know, I'm like, I like social predators a lot more than I like solitary predators. And it just kind of moved into me being like, okay, I'll just try and do terrestrial predators instead of marine predators. And um, I kind of wanted to do a lot of wolf work in, in the, in the you know, in my future. That sort of panned out. I did some wolf behavior work and stuff like that. But I, uh, I came to the U.S. I was like, yeah, I'll get a master's degree here. And then we'll move from there. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I've ever felt like I feel comfortable in nature, I guess. It's just not like um, not too comfortable, but I like it. So like right. if you throw me into the woods, I enjoy it. You throw me into the desert. I enjoy it to some extent, depending on how hot it is. But like, you know, uh, everything is just has its own beauty in it. And so like I, I learn to enjoy what I can from every habitat and every biome that I'm in. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can totally appreciate that too. You mentioned very quickly here, um, solitary versus social predators. Mm-hmm. When I think of that, I think of things like wolf packs. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, so what are some examples of social versus uh, solitary predators? Well, I mean, you've got you 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 obviously have your wolf packs, and you obviously have your your coyote packs, um, and so that those are the ones that I, I tend to gravitate with because there's just there isn't just the layer of predation. There's, you know, there's a lot more to it. There's their intrasocial reactions, the territorial disputes and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, you've got solitary ones in this case. You've got bobcats and mount lions, which are the felines usually are a lot more solitary. Interestingly enough, we're finding out that that's not necessarily the case. They may be more solitary hunters than they are anything else. But, you know, there's a lot of research now to show that uh, mount lions, you know, get together and, and talk and share meals and stuff like that so it's always like you have this old gross oversimplification of what the animal world is like when you when you're an undergraduate and then the more you start you know getting experience and then you move on to your graduate you're like oh you know it's not all entirely like clear cut as it used to be right so right um yeah uh, i mean that's the that's the ones that at least in north america just strike out of out of me is a uh, do you know if a lynx is a solitary? Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. they're fairly solitary creatures. Uh, they get together okay. during mating, and the mom stays with the kittens for uh, a while until it's time for the kittens to move on. I think and bears too, right? Bears are are interesting. Um, I think it really depends on where you are. Uh, in my cameras, where I, where I set up cameras and stuff, I usually find that the mom bear is followed by either last year's um, cubs or 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 this year's cubs but there's always she's always being followed by someone so i think mama bears at least in, in my neck of the woods don't usually have a whole lot of solitary life okay. uh, maybe, maybe a couple of months a, a year but not a whole lot you know um so i don't know i mean they, they definitely definitely hunt in a solitary manner if you consider them hunting but they don't necessarily like you know um all they forage they probably do with someone else next to them so right okay that's interesting yeah because I've always wondered you know like and I I would imagine there's when I think California I think you know bobcats um you know and when I think British Columbia I think grizzly bears 
And there is the, this aspect of predatory grizzly bears as opposed to the, the kind of more tame black bears you have mm -hmm. in, in Ontario and the East Coast. Um, do you guys track any grizzlies in California? Well, so the, the really interesting thing, right? It, I mean, California doesn't have any grizzly bears. Okay. Um, it hasn't had grizzly bears for hundreds of years now. Uh, but the, the interesting thing about it is that California was prime grizzly country. Right. So the, the area, what you consider in your head as being California is a lot of the lowlands in particular had grizzlies in them. They had elk. They had all these animals that were present in the landscape and it, they weren't in like small numbers either. But, you know, there's a, a huge change. The, the Central Valley, if you Google images of it, it's mostly just farmland. Right. It's usually it tends to be dry. It tends to be like you all the pictures that you see is arid dirt stuff like that but it was one of the biggest wetlands in in california and so forth in the west um so it's really really bizarre to think about the fact that like you know 500 600 years ago you, the very area that you know i was walking i was walking on this morning was wet and not just like you know a little bit like permanently wet so um but we don't have grizzlies in our, okay. our neck of the woods. Um, I think the closest ones are somewhere uh, in south and northeast Washington um, and obviously Idaho, but not anywhere near here. Um, and I have to ask, I have to ask about this because this is a, a, something that's being discussed a lot, especially mm -hmm. in mainstream media, is the the aspect of wild pigs. That's something that's, uh, there oh, seems yeah. to be quite a few moving north. Um, I'm not sure about California. So, um, and since your, your, your knowledge is probably mostly limited to California, but I'm, I am curious to see if you've heard of any issues with them. Oh, yeah, we have tons. Oh, yeah. Ton, tons of wild pigs. Um we have both the feral pig and also wild boar as a species in and of itself, right? So there's a difference. What's the difference? Yeah. Uh, the wild boar are a species of pig uh, that was that's in Europe that is a wild species of pig, uh, and whereas the feral pigs were domesticated pigs that are let loose into the landscape. And through time, if you if you look at pigs, you know you think of your little pink piggy. Um, and you release them into the woods, their next generation gets a little bit tougher skin and like darker colors and more hair. And, and per generation that goes by, um, they tend to get a lot more feral looking. So you get a resemblance of what looks like a, a very scraggly boar um, that looks like that. But that's a feral pig versus the wild boar species that you would technically see, you know. Okay. Um, it's it's always tricky, and I think those I think both of them definitely um, interbreed when they have the opportunity. So like it's not always you know cut and dry, but we've had both. So we had feral pigs, and there's also been wild boar that were brought in here to hunt in the past. They were brought in right. by um, I think it was Spanish missionaries or some sort of uh, colonizer, rather you know um, conquistadors. I'm not entirely sure who brought them, but they were brought here. Um, our habitat, especially the foothills, are very, very welcoming to them because we have a lot of acorns that drop and we have a lot of oak. And so they, they love to just go around and eating all the acorns that's around there and a lot of berry bushes. So, uh, and they can and be they, pretty fierce animals. Like, yeah. you know, they can be quite threatening to humans. I remember, mm -hmm. uh, visiting Portugal and walking along the beach and I saw 
pig tracks. And I said to my Portuguese friend, I said, I think there might be some boars around here. And she said, oh, we should get, get away from the area because this can be dangerous. And I looked, sure enough, I looked just at the, you know, the edge of the forest and there was a family of them. And I thought to me, I was like, this is really cool because right. there's none around here. But yeah, we, we definitely got away from there because we thought, well, okay, this could be dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. They're definitely dangerous. Um, in, in California, the, the idea is to shoot them on site, right? Uh, wow. you can get, if you have a hunting license, you can get, um, a pick tag. So it's like 16, $15 or $20 to have a tag that lets you kill pigs. Uh, and if you're a landowner and they've had, you've had issues with them, you can file for a depredation permit and then you get given the, the permit to walk out and just shoot as many pigs as you can find, you know, within a certain time frame to reduce, uh, the damage that they do. So, uh, when it comes to like lethal measures and non-lethal measures, I, I try and use non-lethal measures for the predators, but for pigs that are invasive, it's, it's all, all, well, partially because non-lethal measures don't work, but also, yeah, it's all lethal work. So and they can reproduce really quickly. I remember mm -hmm. reading, uh, again, it's in the mainstream media right now, but they can reproduce extremely quickly. And yeah. I was reading that Texas has a huge problem where they're reproducing faster than they can cull them. So I would imagine, yeah, I mean, I, you know, this is why I brought it up because it's such a, a problem and I think it's going to be a bigger problem in the future. Yeah, they're, they're very adapted. They reproduce very quickly and very few predators frequently mess with them. So whilst bears and mountain lions will, will take adults every now and then, uh, coyotes might get little piglets, right? Um, they're, they don't have, so in Europe, wild boar are a little smaller and they, they can get more predated on by wolves. So there's wolf packs that, especially in Italy and, 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 you know, in the Mediterranean, the wild boar packs the wild wolf packs are specializing in taking down boar. They know what they're doing. Whereas over here, we don't have predators that have specialized in taking down boar. So everyone that does it is kind of like opportunistic um, or testing the waters. But it, I haven't heard yet of any particular animal that says, this is all I'm going to be eating is, you know, wild pig. So. Right. I'm sure maybe with time they'll evolve and, and, you know, climate change and all this kind of drying will yeah. move populations around and all that jazz. But I did, I did eat wild boar in Portugal. It was pretty tasty, I have to yeah. say. Uh, I, I imagine the boar that uh, people are able to hunt in California, they can also eat. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've, had, I've had wild boar in Austria uh, where I, I did, you know, we, we caught one and we caught it because um, it was it was doing a lot of damage to the, the area. Uh, I've had wild pig here. It's not as good as wild boar. A lot of the, the pig, in general, a lot of the, the omnivore flavor comes about where what they've been eating. So if they're feeding on natural like corn, um, hazelnuts or nuts in general and stuff, they have a better taste flavor than... Uh, you know, animals that just feed on whatever they find, right? which could be like carcasses, it could be rotten meat, trash, it could be all sorts of things. So it's not necessarily always good. Um, I know that there's some programs right now in California where if they do um, widespread, so they have like eradication days where they, if they do eradication days, uh, the meat from those animals goes to homeless shelters. 
Okay. So it gets processed on the spot, and some of the cuts get you know, taken to homeless shelters for cooking because, you know, um, it can make for really good stews. It can make for really good food like that, but not necessarily like, you know, a barbecue or a pit roast or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, it's not going to be the tastiest ham, but it's going to exactly. be good enough for a good stew. That's for sure. Yeah. And, you know, like yeah. if you have no food, you'll, t- you'll take some of the least tasty right. food if it's food, right? So in the end of the day, it's it's yeah. pl- a benefit situation. So, yeah. Exactly. Uh, what I find really interesting about what you do is that you do this from your own company. You don't mm-hmm. do this for the government. Mm-mm. So th- I find that really interesting because I think, I don't know how it works in Canada, but I've never heard of a predator specialist in Canada that didn't work for the government. I don't know if it's a government domain, um, but I find it really cool that you decided to just set up shop instead. Uh, is there a reason why you did that instead of going to work for the government? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, well, so the the human wildlife conflict field is one that's like relatively new, right? Uh, and it's, it's expanding, like it, it, at least in the U.S., it used to be predominantly in areas where endangered species were present. So wolves in particular, you couldn't go out and shoot wolves, right? Uh, it was illegal to do it. So they had to have people who would specialize in going out and talking to the ranchers and either eventually leading to the shooting of the wolves, but also setting up measures that deterred wolves from the, the livestock and stuff like that. Uh, so it started with the federal government and there's more state jobs now. Uh, Honestly, one of the reasons why I did it is because I didn't have the job anywhere else. Like there wasn't anyone hiring. Uh, and it, this started off as a simple like project situation where I helped a bunch of friends, you know, that I knew helped them deal with like their livestock depredations. And then it, it kind of escalated. And I said, okay, I need to put a name down for this. I need to make this official. So, A, it looks okay on the resume, right? Uh, and B, there there is some legal and you know, some some legal constraints and some things that may, if they pop up, I have some protection rather than, you know, just being someone who is just walking around on people's properties, putting devices that make loud noises or whatever, you know. So uh, there was a need to formalize everything before anything happened that would backfire on me. Um, yeah, that's that, that's a very smart move. I mean, mm-hmm. I myself am incorporated, so I love the, I yeah. love it when people start their own thing as as a way to create their own careers. Yeah, um, I think that's really neat. Do you do you watch the TV show uh, Yellowstone? I have not. No. Not okay, it, it's I, it's one of my new favorite shows. I just started watching it. I yeah. marathon watched the first three seasons, um, but it's great because it's it shows ranch life and it also mm-hmm. does deal with the wolves. Um, you know, um, being predators around the the cows that these guys are raising, and that they always have this like this one cowboy in charge of of deterrence and and all that stuff. And I've I've always found that fascinating. Like, and they usually pick the, this cowboy who's who's just in tune with how wolves behave and right. and all this stuff. And he's the person who, during I guess the seasonal run, makes sure that the the wolves don't eat the cows, especially the baby cows. Right. Um. So do you get called for jobs like that? Like, do do ranches and farms call you? Yeah, so one of the one of the advantages of being that kind of emerged as its own positive accidentally, but one of the advantages of being independent is that you're not associated with the government, and so uh, there's a lot of distrust of the government recently, you know, um, in popular media and a lot of all these right. things. So, um, so when you're a rancher and you don't have anyone to turn to, you don't want to turn into to the the government because you don't trust them for whatever reason. 
Uh, but you also usually, a lot of these people don't want to turn to wildlife advocate groups, right? Because they also don't trust them. So um, being independent has, has offered me the ability to, of me walking up to people and saying, I have nothing to gain out of this. I just want to help you, right? And here's how I want to help you with the way that I think science, um, you know, benefits you. So this is, this is what the best science says. This is what the most recent science says. This is what we're going to do. Um, so I get, I get calls from farms and, and ranches. Usually now it's up to this point, it's been medium-sized operations. Like I haven't had anything like really big. Um, I think the biggest one was about 200 sheep, 250 sheep, I think, or something. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty big. It's just like cows are the ones that are like kind of hard to get into, I think. Uh, mostly because adult cows don't really have a whole lot of predation, right? But if you have if you have sheep or or goats grazing in a national forest, you're basically ringing the doorbell for like every single uh, the <laughs> dinner bell for every single predator that's out there, right? So they have a lot more issues with uh, with depredation. So they they want to uh, get more people involved and and deal with it. So. You see yeah. a lot of people, at least around uh, Ottawa, where where I'm recording from. Um, a lot of sheep farms and goat farms have mm-hmm. llamas and they have <laughs> these, uh, or, or, you know, sheep dogs or whatever. Do those tend to be a good form of um, deterrence or do you sometimes have to go one step further? Livestock guardian dogs are great, right? Uh, if you do it properly, um, I, I've just been starting to get into it in the past maybe nine months. Uh, before that, I was using a lot of electronics, but I know, I know that for a fact the dogs work better. Um, it's just a matter of getting into it, um, getting the people accustomed with what you need to do, you know, um, getting the, the puppies or the dogs raised and bonded with the cattle. There's a lot of cost up front, so it's not for everyone, right? Especially if you're going to buy a breed dog, because you can't just go out and adopt a dog from a shelter, right? So there's certain costs associated with it. But I think, I think the dogs in particular are really good. Um, there, there's a whole psyche of creating a fear landscape for a predator. Uh, and I think the dogs do that very, very well. Uh, the llamas and the alpacas and stuff, it's, it's really cute. And I, th- I, I like to see them, right? Uh, I've seen people use emus as well. Um, the, they work to an extent. So like the, uh, the llamas and the alpacas will work on canines. Because coyotes and wolves historically have not encountered this species before, so it always like even even, and this is not obviously this isn't this isn't scientifically proven, but I think that um, instinctually you don't know how to react to something that you don't have a life history with, right? But I think mount lions, I've seen them kill where I've seen killed alpacas by mount lions, and I think that uh, the the animal, since it ranges from the north to the South Americas, I think there's something instinctually that lets them say, okay, this could be potential prey. So I think they work, but I also tell people that if you're going to keep like a guard, uh, a guard llama or a, ga- a guard alpaca or whatever, uh, try and add something else into the mix to keep the lions away. Because the lions okay. will be deterred at the beginning maybe, but eventually it, they will probably die. They'll, they'll probably, probably just... Well, I mean, I, I would imagine they, they would just study, right? I mean, yeah. I, I would think they're smart enough for that. I mean, th- there's a lot there's a lot that goes on into like each 
uh, livestock depredation event, right? Um, and most often than not, these these animals aren't just they don't just wake up one day and go, you know what I want today, lamb, right? Um, there's usually some some outside force that is pushing them towards going and and attacking livestock. It's not always just a a simple like okay decision process. So part of part of my job is to go out and, and try and find those factors and see what causes this what caused this this effect. Is it something that's going to keep going? Is it something that, you know, it was a one-off and likely not going to be a problem anymore? Uh, and and you just have to do a lot of, like, looking into the habitat, hopefully get some images or some videos of the animals themselves so you can uh, decipher some behavior and stuff like that. There's a lot of, like, CSI work that goes into it almost. Well, that was, I guess that leads me to my next question then, which is how, how does that process even work? Like, let's say I, I own a sheep farm, let's say, you know, 200 sheep, um, uh, a few of them I've lost to coyotes or what I think are coyotes, it might be wolves or it might be lions. How do you even start with that? Well, if I told you my trade secrets. Right, no, of uh, course. <laughs> uh, so the, in it, general, in general. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't, I don't really care a whole lot about like keeping secrets. Um, it, there, there's a, a lot that goes in it. So I have a, a questionnaire usually that I ask people that first approach me and it's simple stuff like, why do you think this animal caused the attack, right? What do you have evidence? Uh, if it's a fresh kill, I'll go out on site and look at it myself and look at all that stuff myself. Um, uh, that hasn't, you know, that, that happens more often, not in the, uh, like in any time that's not the summer in the valley because the summer in the valley distorts things a lot. So, um, but you know, th there's that aspect of it. There is, um, so I've got the questionnaire. I've got like you know, looking at the local, especially now wildfires, and if anything pushes that down. Uh, if I can, if I can find the, the kill with the landowner's permission, usually we can shave it and and look at you know attack patterns or footprints nearby, and you can skin it if you want to skin it and look at what you know under the skin what happened. Um, so it, it kind of depends on what's available to you to investigate. Um, a lot of, a lot of the things that I find at least is, you know, you, I get emails saying like, oh, well, you know, coyotes killed my sheep or whatever. And you walk on the site and more often than not that animal died from other causes. It's just coyotes have, you know, scavenged it. Right. So of course it's a dead animal that's staying there for one or two days. It smells. You know, and, and that causes a lot of animals to to come over and, and have a look. So um, I don't have like my reports don't have any official way to them. And that's something that I tell people like straight off the bat is like I cannot, you know, tell you whether or not I can tell you what my opinion is. But in order for you to go through the official channels, you need to talk to official, um, you know, state agents and stuff like that. But, you know, uh, so far, I haven't been wrong. Uh, so that's, that's good. Right. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, more often than not, it's just a case of, of talking to the people and, you know, sometimes it's just seeing what they think and versus what they want. Right. right? So there's a lot of people that will tell you, oh, well, you know, I, I know it's coyotes cause I keep hearing them every night and I keep hearing them really close to my house. And, uh, and so I might walk over there and I might just say, you know what, there's, there's no evidence that a coyote did anything of this, right? But if you're worried about a coyote, let's talk about what your options are. 
right? Let's talk about what you're you're fully legal because I'm I only operate legally, right? So all the legal options that are out there, and here's all your full legal options, and here's what I think you should do because this is what I know from science works best. Right. Um, so. So I've got to ask then, what mm-hmm. I mean, should normal people who like we're building a house in the woods, okay, right. in in PEI, seven acres of woods. Um, I don't know if there's coyote coyote activity. I'm going to set up some trail cams because I'm totally going to nerd out on that, on that nice, you know, yeah. on that stuff. Um, if I do spot some coyotes, is there something I can do as a homeowner to, uh, you know, kind of deter them? I mean, do you want to deter them? Are you Should worried I? about? Are you worried about like your dog or your cat or, or you just like not want them around the house for whatever reason? Because like, I guess that's know. that's the best question to ask. Then is there a reason for homeowners to be scared of coyotes? I don't think so. Like, okay. um, the only reason, the only the only things that I I think you know you ought to be cautious about is yeah, if you let your dogs out to go potty at night, right? So and that kind of thing, then yeah, absolutely. If you live in any any area that shares the land with predators you need to make a conscious decision go out with a flashlight you know scan the area a little bit like walk around for a minute before you know you let your dog out or whatever um but i think a lot of people and i tell these two two people and all more often than not i am justified just by the trail cam footage i'm like you know you think your backyard is barren and nobody uses it but i bet you that if you put a a trail camera out there you will at least you'll catch a coyote within a month like guaranteed, if you're in coyote country, they'll they'll swing by. Like they're not afraid to do it. Um, and so you just have to either come to terms with that, or if you don't, think about how much of your effort, like just purely time management wise, like what part of your day do you want to devote to keeping these animals away from your backyard for whatever reason. Now, if you've got chickens or anything else that you're like, I don't want the animals nearby because I don't want them getting ideas, right? That, that's a different, that's obviously a different scenario because yeah, there, there are things that you can do to, to keep them at bay. Um, it just, it's a lot of work. So it's just a matter of like, do you want to do that? Or do you just want to build a chicken coop, electrify the chicken coop, put the chickens in, you know, every night when, or when they're unattended, just put them in there and then sleep soundly 99% of the time. Right. Right. So is that uh, so is that um, when you, you know, I've heard you say already electrify a few times. Is that mm-hmm. is that one of the, the main methods for deterring predators? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely like a, a, a foolproof, almost foolproof. Nothing is foolproof when it comes to coyotes, but um, it's almost a foolproof method. Right. Um, it's if you can if you have the means and the equipment to put out some sort of electricity uh, enclosure you can be pretty sure and confident that as long as there's no gaps or the, you know, the animals can't obviously jump over them at ease or whatever, uh, that you will, you won't get any sort of depredation. Uh, and that's because, you know, it, it zaps them and it, it doesn't feel good. And it's not, it's not a feeling that you can overcome. Right. So I talked about the, the landscape of fear and this idea behind the psyche of it. So the, the reason what I do for the most part is I, I make the predators uncomfortable, right? I don't, I don't try and shoo them away. I just say, okay, you know what? While you're in this area, you're worried about your life, right? Not necessarily because I'm actually going to kill you, but because you think someone's going to kill you. You think there's someone out there that hey, you don't want to, to be around with. So yeah, you're going to use the area nonetheless because they, they will. 
but they're going to be fast about it. They're just going to go in and out. They're going to be very cautious. A single noise will just get, get them running away and stuff like that. And so that is ultimately the best result. Right. Um, it's it's funny because, you know, where I'm from in the north, we weren't so much scared of coyotes. You would see them on, on, a, on a trail cam or crossing mm-hmm. a field across a street or whatever, but you didn't really encounter them. The thing that northerners are mostly scared of are bears. Bears can be pretty scary when they have their cubs with them. You know, it's not something you want to, you want to make some noise when you're walking, taking mm-hmm. a hike in the forest. You want to have something, a whistle, something to just scare them off. Um and I guess, you know, sometimes I wonder, is that fear? Is that fear because, you know, we've heard stories from grandpa and great grandpa and all that stuff. And, and we've read it in the books and we've seen a million predator movies that are just kind of outlandish to a certain extent. Um, how do you manage that, that people's fear versus reality? My first bear encounter was a bear with a cub. Wow. That was really funny. Yeah. Um, my first like, you know, oh, shit, that's a bear. Uh, encounter was a bear with a cub. Um, it's it's a really interesting, you know, thing to talk about, at least in my opinion, for people because there there's a lot of evidence out there. You know, at least I, I you know there's an old saying that if you've walked in the forest, like the cat seen you, but you might not have seen the cat, right? Or something. I'm paraphrasing it, but it's like a very similar thing. And I tell people if you've hiked anywhere in California that is mountain lion country, I can guarantee you that a mountain lion has seen you, right? And you might go your entire life not seeing one. It just, I think we hype up these animals so much because we do hear these stories. And obviously, like with social media now, we we get more and more of these stories fed to us. You know, instantly someone gets attacked in a county in the middle of nowhere that no one's ever heard of. It becomes national news, right? Or the people that you are interested in or the people that you have in your social bubbles on like any sort of social media might share it. And so it might spread. Um, so you gotta, you gotta just sit down and think about it and say like, okay, how much of this is just sensationalism? How much of it is just because, you know, they're, they're reporting something because there's something to report. Right. Um, it just, the reality of it is, is that you, if you take, some precautions you're very unlikely to like have any sort of issues especially when it comes to black bears and uh you know mount lions and that kind of stuff like grizzlies are a different ball game altogether right and polar bears as well and that kind of stuff but um i i think like there's there's definitely issues with bears especially habituated bears like there you can't go out there and say you're like oh no no one's been attacked by a bear and the same goes for mount lions right um but I think the, the, those are statistical anomalies in, in like the millions of people that are out there in the woods every day, you know, enjoying nature and being in close proximity to these animals without them knowing it. Uh, I have footage of people using a trail uh, and there's a coyote, you know, watching them go by and they don't even notice the coyote as they go by. And this was like 30 feet away from them. It's just the coyotes tucked in a bush in front of my camera. Right. And the people just keep on walking and, uh, nothing happens. And, and, you know, we have this idea that nature is out to get us because I think primordially that's what we were used to, you know, when we were back when we, when things were actually out to get us. But I just think, um, it's like, you know, it's not very common. I also think, uh, Americans in particular, like all North Americans, not just like the U S citizens, but everyone kind of enjoys this 
this feeling. I think maybe it's a Western world thing now that I'm thinking about it, but everyone wants to wants to instinctually have the woods be wild, right? I think everyone wants to be like, oh, you need to be careful when you're walking out there. Like I've I've hiked on a on a property, you know, and we came across like a fresh deer kill, right? Like super fresh, maybe maybe an hour long, and people were like, oh, you know, this is really worrying and stuff. I'm like, why? Like, we'll just walk away, leave it alone, and whatever killed it is going to come back and eat it, and then we'll just keep going our way. Like, the predator that has made that kill is not hungry anymore, right? And there's also five of us walking in a group making noise, talking, like, unless if it's a rabbit animal, there's nothing to worry about. So I think there's this instinctual need to make the wild scarier and wilder than it is. And I'm not sure exactly, like, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know where that comes from. Uh, but I, I noticed that a lot with people, you know, um, fairly not sterile, but like fairly easygoing habitats that, you know, you, you don't need to worry much about like walking around in oak when oak chaparral forest. Right. You can see everything around you and stuff like that. And people are like, oh, you better look up on the trees because there might be mountain lions up on the trees waiting to drop down on you. And just, you know. It's a very interesting. Yeah, yeah, you you nailed it though because I got to tell you, you know, especially in Canada, we love feeling like we're part of this dangerous wild, mm-hmm. you know, mountain or or lake kind of, you know, environment. Uh I, my my partner who's from the East Coast and it, you know, she was like she was like you don't need to feel wild in the bush and I was like, yeah, but you know, I'm going to get myself a new hunting knife and da 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 da. It's just it's like this thing that's like this alpha thing that's built into me. It's like in my genes. I don't know where that's from, but definitely maybe maybe it's because I'm from a hunting and fishing family. So we're also the predators, right? Um ourselves as humans. Uh, in North America there's a lot of hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, fishing is, is different perhaps, but, um, definitely when you're from a hunting family, you tend to f- see yourself as more of this kind of wilderness folk kind of thing. You know, I, I don't know how to describe it. I think, yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely it. I also think that we, I, you know, I mean, there's how that aspect of it. I also think that there's the aspect of like, you remember only you have a very selective memory, right? So if you go on 5,000 hikes and you don't, you never feel in danger for any single one of them. You remember them as, oh, we went on this nice hike. It was a nice view, right? You go on one of them and, you know, a bear pops out from the bush like 30 feet away from you. Instantly, that hike out of the 5,000 hikes is going to be the one hike where you're like, oh, you better be careful. Oh, you better do this or this. What happened to me one time, right? Um, and I, I, I know this because I tell my stories like you know, my bear encounter and the mountain lions that I heard like talking to each other and stuff. And those are the ones that, you know, stay with you like the the hikes that i do almost on a monthly basis to go check my cameras where nothing eventful happens are just like yeah i walked up to my cameras i checked the cameras i went back home the end right Right. nothing happens so you don't remember them as vividly so you don't remember how many of those you've done versus the one that you did where you're like oh my god you want me to turn on the lights yeah (laughs) hang on i'll be right back it's okay Um, it's kind of funny now that we're, we're recording video. So, um, we're just going to let him go and, and, uh, turn on the lights. Cause there we go. California times probably getting a little later over there. Um, but we'll resume in just a moment here. Uh, 
that's okay. I'm not even going to edit this out. This is just raw, raw <laughs> podcasting here. But, uh, you know, you mentioned grizzly bears and polar bears are a different breed. What mm-hmm. did you mean by that? Are they actually uh, animals that you should be careful with? So I don't like, I mean, we should preface this in saying that I, I don't really have a whole lot of experience, right? With yes, either of, of the species. Um, I've had experience in, in brown bear country in Greece where I did some surveys, which is brown bears are related to grizzly bears. And so there's the same thing, but they I think they behave more like black-ish bears in, in Europe. But um, yeah, they're, they're a different breed in terms of, you know, they're, they're, much, they're much more aggressive. Um, in terms of defending what they have, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, black bears, you should be scared of them when they have cubs. But the reality is that even if they have cubs, most black bears will run away from you uh, unless if you catch them unaware. Right. So if it's a mother and a cub and they see you coming, they're not going to like the mom's not going to bluff up and charge, start charging you and stuff. They're going to walk away. They're going to run away if they have the opportunity Whereas with grizzlies, my understanding is, is that there's a lot, a lot more of a dynamic going on. They're a much bigger animal. They know they're a much bigger animal. You know, they they push wolves off kills. They do all these sort of things. So they're they're naturally not going to be very intimidated by a human. Uh, and so there, it's a different dynamic in that regards. In that they they know that they can um, they can do damage, and they know that they can intimidate you more than the you intimidate them. So they're right. there's a different dynamic in terms of the woods and who's you know who should be scared of who in that regard. Yeah, I would definitely be scared of polar bears if I was up north. That's that's 100%. I'd be terrified of them. I've only heard stories from friends who have interacted with like polar bears or been near polar bears and stuff like that. It's a different situation, right? Yeah. Um that's you for need sure. to like, you know, pay attention to your surroundings and all that, but yeah. Yeah, I guess there's a reason too that they carry guns in in the Arctic. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, well, I mean, this has been a lot of fun. I want to nerd out with you a little bit here and mm-hmm. and and not talk about wildlife. We're going to talk about a subject entirely different. Um, just because I like to do that sometimes. You mentioned D and D when we ver- before we started recording that you're into D and D, which is really cool because it's something that I was into when I was very very young, and I'd like to get back into. Um, when did your interest with D&D start and, you know, what keeps you going? I was 17 and I actually started with, um, World of Darkness. Um, so it was like, um, Vampire, the Requiem, Werewolf, the Forsaken and, and stuff like that. And that was what drew me into it was like this sort of like gothic horror and stuff like that. And, um, one of my friends who, who was, we role played together was like, Hey, you should try uh, you should also try like Dungeons and Dragons. It's a classic, right? And so, yeah, we said, okay, we'll try Dungeons and Dragons. So, you know, we tried that. I've been, I've played a lot of different role playing games since then. Um, and I, you know, it's just a very interesting thing. I, I like tabletop games. I like playing a lot of, uh, you know, board games. And so this is just the, that with a lot of improv added to it and like a lot of like social interaction that you don't necessarily get from, from board games. It's more of a cooperative storytelling if done right, right? Rather yes. than rather I always than... tell people, you know, because there's a lot of misconceptions about D&D. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot, especially in the in the 80s and 90s, people were terrified yeah. of people playing D&D. And yeah, 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 all that stuff. But I always try to tell people, you know, it's not um 
it's not for socially awkward. It's actually for social people because you have to interact with each other. And I find that it helps people with decision making, problem solving, yeah. creativity, all that stuff. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely a lot of avenues to it. You know, it's been used now to uh, in schools successfully to like try and get, you know, uh, kids with like different social um, so la- kids that lack social skills, like try and get them to like increase those social skills. And there's a lot, there's a lot more to it when you read it and, you know, when you play it and you understand that there's like, not only is this a, a great, you know, outlet for adults to get together and play, uh, but it can be used constructively if you know what you're doing, you know, if you're a professional or whatever, to get something out of it uh, from different people, which I think is great, you know, in, in and of itself. And um, there, I know there's programs for like at-risk kids, you know, that, you know, focus on D&D and focus on getting them to do that stuff. There's there's Dungeons and Dragons in prison. Like uh, I saw a whole documentary about it on Vice, I think maybe it was Vice, but it was talking about how, you know, they were playing Dungeons and Dragons and how you get away from certain things because they're not allowed to have dice in a certain uh, prison complexes because it's gambling. So they had to try and figure out how to do, you know, rolling for it and stuff like that. And so, yeah, it's a very interesting very interesting thing and there's a lot of culture and now we're getting a lot more spotlight in in things like that it's no longer considered like the stigma that it was before you know so people are getting more exposed to it and yeah i think it's a a great you know hobby to be get in it requires some money in the beginning but also like not a whole lot so also can be relatively cheap if you you know you want to share the costs with friends and well, I mean, compared to becoming a hockey player or, you know, doing anything else, uh, you know, PS5 is much more expensive than, oh, uh, yeah. you know, than playing D&D. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's, it's really cool. I mean, and that's like, that's, that's a really cool aspect of it, right? Is you also, you can buy the books and share them with your friends. You don't have to like, yeah. doesn't everyone have to have the books? And uh, it could be really improvised. You can just be like, hey, come over. We can have like, I know there's groups that like drink heavily and play because they like enjoy like the shenanigans that comes from like playing drunk, right? And I know other groups that are like, no, this is very serious role playing. We're going to get into character. We're only going to be talking to character. And there, so there's like all this different spectrum in terms of what you want to get out of this game that is essentially like the same rules for everyone, right? Um, but then, you know, you have people that sit down and build elaborate settings with like, you know, every inch of the world finely detailed. And then you have other people that are like, I don't know, it's a city called City. Who cares? Right. And <laughs> yes. Um, so you get all these all these different spectrums of people and somehow a lot of people mesh with each other. So you get people, everyone meshing together and being like, OK, we're going to do this and we're going to be we're going to do a funny campaign that where everyone's just going to act silly and funny or whatever or really evil one where we go around killing everyone we find or whatever like it's just this all like outlet of imagination that you get through it so yeah i would i would imagine too um just with a few minutes left here Mm -hmm. uh, i would imagine that you know like you said earlier sometimes you have to go investigate animal death Mm -hmm. you know you go to a farm there's dead animals Mm -hmm. sometimes shredded apart by an animal sometimes whatever Mm -hmm. um Playing D&D must be a, a good way to cope with that kind of stuff. You know, I would imagine your science degree didn't prepare you to look at shredded up animals. Uh, I mean, it, it, my upraising, death has always been like part of part of my my life in terms of like, you know, we were taught really early on to like accept death for what it is. 
so like that part doesn't bother me, but there's definitely, it definitely has helped with creative process, right? So in both ways, interestingly enough, my, my job has helped me put information into my role-playing games that aren't necessarily something that everyone thinks about. Uh, and the other way around is like, you know, the role-playing games have definitely like, one of the really cool things is if you, if you are the games master and you, you put this puzzle forward for people to solve, right? And you're like, this is in your head, this is how you solve the puzzle. And then your players find a completely different way to solve the puzzle. And you're like, holy shit, how did you guys figure that out? Like, this is yeah. insane. Um, and that actually comes back to my, my job because like coyotes in particular are notoriously smart animals. You, like, I will always say this, no matter what, it's like there's no predictable way to deter a coyote. There are tools in your toolbox and some of those will work and some of those might work perfectly, but they won't work forever because these animals adapt. So you gotta, gotta stay on top of it. You gotta think outside the box. You gotta introduce a lot of things. You gotta do all these sort of things and um, interacting with other humans and seeing how they solve certain scenarios that you think, you can only be solved in one of five ways and they introduce a sixth, seventh, and eighth way, right? Gets you to be a lot more understanding of how other people think. And I think ultimately that's that's like a big part of it is that you're introducing some diversity in the in terms of the way you're thinking into your table. And that in my experience has translated to my field skills. So Yeah, that's yeah. uh really, really, really neat. Yeah. I love that. I love it, man. I especially love that that little uh tidbit about the coyotes uh yeah i wish i wish we had more time but i'm gonna have mm -hmm. to, to call it uh quits now but uh <laughs> listen petros i wish you all the best I, uh -huh. I i have to say i'm really proud of you for being you know a science guy who went into industry um you know i i interview a lot of academic uh, scientists uh -huh. and i don't get to hear the voices of the people who didn't stay in academia and just went yeah. into industry so it's kind of interesting to to hear your perspective on things so i wish you all the best and uh, it's been a lot of fun having you on the show thank you mm -hmm.